And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will, per will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we first got married, um, my wife had, my wife is lovely in so many ways. My, my lovely wife had a bit of a speeding problem, though, when we first got married. Now, over the past 10 years, I've gotten, gotten more speeding tickets than she has, exactly one, okay? No speeding tickets for the past 10 years for, for Megan. But when we first got married, she was driving this 1998 Volvo that her mother had handed down, and I, I think that the speedometer was broken in this thing. She just had a lead foot. Everywhere she went, she was getting a speeding ticket. I think that the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department just had it flagged, and they were looking for Megan's Volvo to pull over. One of these occasions when she was speeding, she was, she was driving and the cop pulls her over and says, ma'am, do you know how old you are? And we're young, we're newlyweds. Megan's very young. And, uh, and the cop's like, do you know how old, fast you were going? And she said, I don't know, probably like 10, 10 over or something like that. And he's like, uh, you're going 55 in a 25 mile per hour children's uh, school zone, ma'am. And uh, then he wrote her a reckless driving ticket and she called me weeping, uh, as was appropriate. We were so young and so poor at this time. Do you have any idea how much it costs to have a 21-year-old on your insurance with a reckless driving ticket? We could not have this on our record. Insurance would kill us. At the time, seminary students I mean, seminary students are the cheapest labor you can find at this time. I was getting paid in like circus peanuts and prayers. And, and we just weren't going to have it. So what did we do? Better call Saul. We, we dialed up one of, those, uh, one of those lawyers on TV that's guaranteed to get you out of stuff. And we said, sir, um, we need some help. Can, can you help us? And he said, I mean, this was about as simple as it could ever be. He said, send me $200 and I'll take care of it. And I was like, well, I mean, I, I, ethically at this point in my life, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But at that time, we could not have that ticket. And uh, so we, we sent the man $200. And we had a man go to a courtroom, plead for us as an advocate to the seat of power, and get us off. I think he negotiated it down to like faulty equipment. Maybe the speedometer really was broken. And then we didn't have any, any points on our record and, and we were able to get out of it. Now that's a silly story, uh, but it's one that illustrates very much what's happening in this story of Esther. Where the people of God needed an advocate to go to the throne of power 
to help them in their time of need. And as we explore this story, I think that you're going to really see yourself in this story in a variety of different ways. And there's a lot to go through with this story. So today we're starting a two-week study of the book of Esther. And we're flying through this book. There's eight chapters in Esther. It's one long story. And there's a lot that's really interesting about the book of Esther. First of all, it's one of two books that are named after women in, in the entire Bible. The first one is Ruth, and this one is Esther. And they have a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. Ruth is sweet. It's a sweet story. It's a beautiful story. Esther, I'm not even sure that HBO could make a show about the story of Esther. It is ruthless. It is gory. It has a lot of details that are not appropriate uh, for many of us uh, when we read it. But then it's in the Bible. And so we have to read this and see what God is doing in this story. And this series, this short study that we're doing is called Finding God in a Godless World. Finding God in a Godless World. And that title is apt because as you'll see, this story of Esther, the world that Esther inhabits is godless. She is a religious minority. She is the, one of the only uh, Christians in her position, not Christians, one of the only people of God in her position. And it's a godless world where, where the, the people of God are not regarded very highly whatsoever. Not only that, but the book of Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where the name of God is not. God is not mentioned anywhere in this book. That is astounding when you think about the fact that there is an entire book of the Bible, eight chapters, a long story, that does not mention God whatsoever. That is so astounding that some theologians over the years have decided that Esther should not be included in the Bible. Martin Luther, for one, said, I see no reason why we should keep this book in the Bible. He was ready to chop it out. But I think that you'll see as we dive into this book that God's fingerprints, though not clearly spoken of, but God is clearly found. He works behind the scenes. He is moving and he is active. And you will see that these series of coincidences, quote unquote, that occur throughout the book of Esther that, these, that they're not coincidences at all, but that God is active and that he is moving. So as we dive into it, let's keep that in mind. I think that many of us will resonate with this message of Esther as we live in a world that is not devoid of God, but oftentimes it can feel devoid of God. It can oftentimes feel like we live in a godless society, like we're the only Christians in, that there are and that everyone in the entire society is bent against us. Most of our neighbors and our friends are perfectly happy to live their lives without thinking about God whatsoever. But that does not mean that our God is not active and moving here in Somerville, because he is. He is active and moving. He's doing a fantastic thing, and we're excited about what he's doing in our church, beginning with each of us, and in our greater community. So let's dive into it. Uh, the first four chapters today, and then the, the rest of the half of the story next week. The book of Esther occurs about 500 years before the time of Jesus. And if you know your history, which I did not know until like I went to seminary, so don't feel bad about yourself. What's going on here is the people of Israel are in what we call captivity or exile. And the way that they got there is basically uh, there was a powerful kingdom that took over 
every nation in the area. And one of the ways that they would disrupt the people that they would take over is they would remove the people out of their homeland and move them into another land just to disorient them. And so this is uh, about a hundred years after Israel has been removed, the people of Israel have been removed from the nation of Israel, and now they're living in Persia. They're living in Susa, and the empire is Persian. And so at this point, some of the people of God have gone back to Israel. They've been allowed to go back. That's the story of of, um, Nehemiah and, and Ezra, and so you can go and read those on your own time at some point. But not everybody has returned. There's a few Jewish people that still live in the diaspora throughout the entire area. And so today we're picking up with this story as there's a few Israelites, a few Jewish people who are still living in Susa, which is where we start today. So we're going to just start in the very first verse. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be citing verses from the first four chapters. And so you might want to just open, leave it open, and that way you can look at the different verses as I get to them. So uh, we're going to start with Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the, day, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who resigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now let's just stop there for a second because there, that's a lot going on right there that you might not pick up if you, if you aren't looking at it. Uh, let's talk about Ahasuerus and his kingdom. Ahasuerus is a Hebrew word for King Xerxes. Has anybody ever heard of Xerxes before? Now that's a king that we've heard of before. And yes, it is that Xerxes, the one that you have heard of. The word Ahasuerus is a funny word because Ahasuerus sounds like the Hebrew word for headache. So when it says Ahasuerus, it's actually, if you're a Hebrew reader reading this, the original language, and you get to it, it's like King Headache was living there, which makes a lot of sense. As we get to know King Xerxes better, which I'm going to say because Xerxes is easier for me to say than Ahasuerus, because every time I say Ahasuerus, I have to stop and think, how do I say Ahasuerus? Um, King Ahasuerus is a headache because, as you'll see, he's just a headache to the people of, the, of, of God, but also he's a heavy, heavy drinker. And so you better believe that Xerxes has a lot of headaches. King headache makes a lot of sense for this man. If you have heard of Xerxes, one thing you might be thinking of is if you've seen the, if you've read the comic book 300 or if you've seen the movie, yes, that's a comic book depiction of this same king. Um, And that's really exaggerated, but it gives you an impression of the reputation that this guy had. He was powerful. And... It says that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. I want you, if, you're, if you don't know geography, let me just tell you how many nations that would cover today. This was a massive empire. It was the entire known world aside from southern Greece. The people who lived in this empire knew nothing but this empire. It was completely inescapable. It covered the countries or the areas of northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Syria, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, um, Eritrea, um, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. A massive, massive kingdom. And this is important for us because as we dive into the story, what you need to see is that it's completely inescapable. 
You might be thinking, well, why don't they just run away? There's nowhere to run. Everywhere is owned by Persia. And King Xerxes decides that at this point in the story, right here at the beginning, it starts off with him saying, I want to show everyone how great I am. And so I'm going to show everyone and have a parade, essentially, of my riches for 180 days. For half a year, I'm going to declare how great I am. And then at the end of that half a year, I'm going to have a feast for seven days, and it's going to be the biggest feast you've ever seen. I want you to hear how he describes this feast, and how the author describes this feast in Esther, verses 6 and 8 through 8. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. I love it. The king feels even the need to control that people don't have control. For the king had given orders to all of his staff of his palace to do as each man desired. This is a party that would make Entertainment 720 from Parks and Rec just look tiny. This is a party that would make Kanye West look humble. All right, this is a party that would make the Great Gatsby look like the Great Gumby. Most of the parties that I go to are Disney princess themed and I'm drinking Sprite out of a plastic cup and eating pizza. Okay, I know nothing of this type of party. This is elaborate. This is beyond anything that I can imagine. And on the last day of the party, it says that King Xerxes, his heart was merry with wine, is what it says. Now, that is ancient Hebrew for he was sloppy drunk. And he commanded for his wife, Queen Vashti, to be brought out. And he wants her to appear with her royal crown to show off her beauty for all of his guests. Now, it does not specify what else she was supposed to be wearing with her royal crown. It only says her royal crown. And so it's been left up to the imagination of readers who have been quite imaginative over the years as to what else might she be wearing or asked to wear. And Queen Vashti, shockingly, this is a shock, she refuses. Xerxes is not a man that's used to being refused. Now, different theologians have thought different things about Queen Vashti over the years. Luther, as I said, not the, the best uh, interpreter of Esther, uh, actually condemned Vashti and said that she should have submitted to her husband in that moment, which I just say, Luther, I don't get that one, okay? There's some things that I like. That's one that I'm, I'm not quite there with. But then at the same time, it doesn't give us any motivation. It doesn't give us any reason why. Other interpreters have applauded her and said that she was standing up against objectification. And that one makes more sense to me, but the fact is, she's still donezo. She's donezo for Xerxes. He's done with her, and he gets all of, his, um, all of his eunuchs, all of his advisors, which all of his advisors were eunuchs. There was no competition uh, for women in the king's palace. And he gets them together, and he says, how are we going to find a new king, a new, qu a new queen, excuse me? And so one of the brilliant advisors says, well, this is what we should do. We should have the bachelor, ancient Persian edition. 
and they put out an edict saying, there's only two rules for this bachelor competition. And the rules are that you're pretty and that you're a virgin. And you don't really have a choice whether you want to compete. If you are both those things, if you are both per, uh, virgin and pretty, you will be entered and you will be brought to the king's castle. And that's how they went to find the new princess, the new queen, excuse me. Wow, I'm messing up a lot of things. That's how they found the new queen. And what it says is that these women were, would take turns before the king to please him. That is not meant that they're just going to be standing there. Uh, it's not just a beauty competition. Okay, this is, this, is a, this is a sex competition is what it is as they come in to please the king. And this is just an appalling abuse of power. It's, object, it's objectifying. It's horrific. Don't worry. Xerxes was an equal opportunity offender. Uh, ancient, histori ancient historians have said that he would often, every year, take about 500 boys into his service and castrate them so that they could be uh, eunuchs under his service. So he was offensive all the way around. And the way that Xerxes looked at people is said, you exist for my pleasure. You see, he just looked at everyone as an object and said, how can you serve me? Now, the reality is there's no one I know that has that kind of power. But I know a lot of people who look at people like that and think, you exist for my pleasure. You exist for me. And that way of thinking can sneak into our hearts and lives if we're not careful, where we look at people as objects instead of as image bearers of God. This is what pornography has built an empire upon. These people exist for my pleasure. Even in the business world, networking. Hey, what's your name? What's your name? You're not trying to get to know people. You're networking so that you might be able to advance in your career. I've known plenty of people who have kept the same posture, the same worldview as Xerxes, but it wasn't quite as abusive and terrible as what we see here. At this point in the story, we meet another main character, Esther chapter 2, verse 5. And it says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Mordecai. When you read about Mordecai in the story, what it says over and over again is Mordecai the Jew. And as I was researching, why does it say that? Why does it clarify every time? It's because while Mordecai is a common Jewish name today, if you grew up around Jewish people, you would know that there's probably several people named Mordecai around. But that's because they're named after this Mordecai. But at this time, Mordecai was a Persian name. And so they have to keep on specifying Mordecai, the Jew, because if you didn't say that, you would think that this is just another Persian walking around. You see, Mordecai lives between two worlds. He's, he's living as a religious minority trying to fit into and survive a godless world. Some of us can relate. And Mordecai is functioning as the adoptive parent of the main character of the story, Esther. Esther is Mordecai's cousin. Esther's parents have died. And so Mordecai has stepped in as an adoptive father figure. He's older than Esther, and he's caring for her. And what we learned about Esther, which is in the same little paragraph, is that she is a woman who has two names. She's the only one in this entire story with two names. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, 
and her Persian name is Esther. She's given two passports, as you might say. She's given a way to converse as a religious minority and to fit in with the Jewish people. She's also given a passport into the Persian world where she can fit in completely there because she has a Persian name, Esther, and she has a Hebrew name, Hadassah. Esther is pretty, and so it's compulsory that she is entered into the competition. Now, Esther is taken from her home with Mordecai, and she's entered into this competition, and everybody who's entered into this competition goes to live in the king's palace. And in the king's palace, there's only three options for women, essentially. Uh, The first, you could be a part of one of two harems, or you could be the queen. Those are basically your options. The first harem is the virgin harem. And so as you're entered into the virgin harem, you go and live with all of the virgins. And then you go and you have your one night with the king. And then you enter the concubine harem. You're not available to any other man ever in your entire life. Once you go into one of his harems, that is your life from then on. You live in the palace, but it's an objectified life that you live. And so during this next competition, The virgin harem was very large, and then it continued to become the concubine harem over time. Once you enter the concubine harem, you might never see the king again. Or if you did, it was only because he called you specifically by name. What the story actually says is that Esther entered this virgin harem, and she waited there. And you miss this detail if you don't look very carefully. She waited there for four years. She wasn't first up in the beauty pageant, in the Bachelor, uh, Persia edition. She was waiting a long time. But when it it is her turn, it goes well for her. Esther chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says this, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So she's the queen. She's made it. She won. She won the competition for what it's worth. It's a terrible competition, but she did win. And the text is really clear that Esther does not tell anyone of her other name. She does not tell anyone that she is a religious minority. She does not tell anyone that she is a Jew. Esther is in hiding, which is apt because the name Esther means hiding. Around this time, after she becomes queen, her cousin Mordecai just so happens to be sitting out by the gate of the capital one day when he overhears uh, a... um, a plot by two of the king's eunuchs to kill the king. And so what does he do? But he calls for Esther and says, Esther, these guys are going to kill the king. And Esther goes and tells the king. And, and they go and find the eunuchs and they kill the eunuchs before they can execute the assassination attempt. And so with this, it's a small detail. It only takes one paragraph in the story. But what we see is important because Mordecai is earning the favor of the king at this moment, even though it's not directly uh, favor. It, it, it doesn't show the direct connection right now. And after this, we're introduced to the last major character of the story. We know Esther, the Jew in hiding. We know Xerxes, the drunk king. We know Mordecai, the protective father figure. And now we meet Haman. And Haman is an evil dude. He's obviously the biggest villain in this entire story. He's described as an Agagite, That means nothing to us, but to the original readers, again, that would have made a lot of sense because the Agagites were known as being um, um, 
I want to make sure I say it, Amalekites, uh, that Agag was the king of Amalekite, of, Amal of the Amalekites during the days of King Saul. And there's been a beef between the Israelites and the Amalekites for years and years and years. These are two groups that do not get along. They do not get along. And so even just introducing him as an Agagite helps us know that this is the villain of the story. Because this is obviously the villain of the story. It's obviously, it's almost like saying, and enters Haman. He was a Nazi. That's basically what, what is happening here. One day, Haman goes out to the gate where Mordecai likes to hang out, and Mordecai refuses to bow down. Now, why wouldn't Mordecai bow? There's a lot of reasons why people have thought that Mordecai would not bow. But let me make it really clear that this is not a religious reason why Mordecai is not bowing. This is not a Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar type of situation here. Mordecai could have bowed, and it would not have disrespected his reverence toward the one true God. But he decides not to bow. This is probably more like Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat than it is Daniel. And so he refuses to bow, and Haman just gets so bent out of shape. Oh, my gosh. Haman, he, he's very powerful, and like many powerful people, his ego is very fragile. If you've met powerful people, you might know that sometimes a powerful person's ego is very fragile. And so what does he do? But he overreacts to the nth degree, and he says, Mordecai would not bow to me. Queen Xer King Xerxes, I need to kill all the Jews. Now that's an extreme overreaction. But Xerxes trusts Haman, and he gives him his ring, and he basically says, do what you want to do. Now, I know it's cliche, to compare people to Hitler. I know that's cliche. In fact, there's a rule online called, uh, called Godwin's Law that says the longer an argument goes on on the internet, the more probable it is for someone to compare someone else to Hitler. And so you see these arguments that start off about grass-fed beef versus conventional-fed beef, and before you know it, both sides are calling the other one Hitler. But Haman he kind of deserves it, okay? Like, he's trying to kill all the Jews. I don't know how you can be more Hitler-like, okay? And so things are looking pretty dire. When Mordecai finds out about this edict, he immediately goes into mourning with the traditional sackcloth and ashes that we see in the, in the Old Testament all the time. And he goes and finds Esther, and he tells her about the decree. He says, Esther, Esther, you need to hear this. They've made a decree, and it's looking really dire. And, the, and what they've actually done is Haman rolled a dice called a, a pure, P-U-R, a pure. And he rolled the dice, and it landed on a date. It's 11 months from now. And in 11 months, they're going to kill all of our people. They're going to kill all of the Jews. Now, that name, pure, that rolling of the dice and setting the date. That's important. It comes up next week, but just store that one away in your brain as something that you'll need to know for next week. And he says, Esther, we need help, and you're the only one with access to the king. We need you to go tell the king. We need you to get him to overturn this edict. And so what does Esther do? Esther, she doesn't start off with courage. 
Esther starts off with a, seriously? Really? You want me to just walk in there to see the king? No one walks in and asks Xerxes, just asks him for things. Especially no woman walks in and just asks Xerxes for things. I can't do that. He'll kill me. That's against the law. I'll never do that. Are you crazy? And Mordecai responds, and it's so powerful. He says this, chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to start. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than, in, than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Now, I love what Mordecai is saying. Mordecai is showing so much faith. And how is he showing faith? But he believes in a God who will keep his promises. You see, Mordecai's faith doesn't come from the fact that it's realistic that salvation will come, but Mordecai says God has promised to make us as numerous as the stars in the sky. Our God has promised to preserve us at all times. And so, Esther, you know what? If you don't do this, relief will come. Relief will come. If you don't do this, I trust in a God who is more powerful. It doesn't say it, but it says it between the lines. And then Mordecai continues, and he says, but maybe... Esther, my dear, my loved one, maybe you are the way that God has prepared. Maybe God has placed you in the palace for such a time as this. There's been a whole series of circumstances that have occurred to get us here. Coincidences. And now we see one of the people of God in this place place of power where she might be able to plead for the people of God. So what does Esther do? She calls for a fast. This is the most religious thing you see in the entire book. This is, this is about it. The, the no mention of God, just, just a fast here. And he says, and then she says, after we fast, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's powerful. It's courageous. She knows that she's facing a death sentence, yet she says, I need to go and do this for the chance that it might work. Now, we'll finish this story next week. You'll see what happens to her. I'll give you a little spoiler uh, for it. She does not perish. Esther lives. But you guys all came here today to hear about God. And I've told you a story completely devoid of God. And so how are we supposed to apply this? How are we supposed to use this in our lives? The easiest way and the way that most people have applied this over the years is I've heard this, and you've probably heard it like this if you've grown up in the church in any sort of way, is to place yourself in the shoes of Esther and say, where has God placed me for such a time as this? Where might I have to speak up? Why has God placed me in my neighborhood? Why has God placed me in my job? Why has God placed me with these friends or in this city. Sometimes we resent where God has placed us. Sometimes we're not sure why he has us in a certain place. But yet, maybe he's put you there for such a time as this. And maybe 
he's going to use you in a powerful way. Why me, we might ask. And we too need to hear the words that Esther heard. Maybe God has placed you just where you are for such a time as this. Maybe he's going to use this difficult place for you to speak bravely for the gospel. And that would be true. Those are all true things. But that, my friends, is an application, but it is not the application of this story. That is not the proper way to apply this completely, because that's Esther's story. This is Esther's story. And when we read the Old Testament, one thing that we cannot do when we read the Old Testament is to see the characters of the Old Testament as the heroes. God is always the hero. And all of these stories of the Old Testament, they really point forward to an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. They point us toward Jesus. And so one thing that we cannot do also, another thing that we cannot do, is to moralize the story. If you say, maybe I should be like Esther here and have courage. Esther does some questionable things in this story that I don't know if I can encourage you to follow her example of all the time. You see, we cannot say that these are examples always for us to follow. Much of what we have in the Old Testament is descriptive of what happened. It's not prescriptive. When you're reading the Old Testament and you see just crazy things, I was reading the book of Judges where this week, if you're doing the church uh, reading plan, you're in Judges with me right now, which is wild, okay? It's crazy. It's a crazy ride. And there's a lot of things that you read about in the Bible that you should not try at home. Do not do it. And so when we read the Old Testament, we need to see that it's descriptive and not prescriptive. But what we see when we read this story of Esther is we see this. And see if you can hear the the echoes of the gospel appearing here. We see a story of a woman, of a person, who is weak and vulnerable, going into the place of ultimate power in the entire known world to mediate and plead for the deliverance of her people. What Esther does is far bigger than what God could ask of any of us. We cannot see ourselves just in the place of Esther. But what Esther does is points us forward to Jesus. Like Esther, Jesus also is weak and vulnerable. Like Esther, Jesus also is called upon to represent a people who are destined to die. Like Esther, Jesus also mediates for his people by appearing before the ultimate power of the universe. Friends, we aren't Esther. Let me tell you who you are in the story. You're the nameless Jewish person that's going to die. You're not one of the heroes. We're not one of the four main characters, even though we might see ourselves in those places. But we're one of the nameless millions who are under the condemnation of death. That is the death that we deserve. And the reality is, friends, that our days are numbered, that there is a date selected. You might not know it, but there is a date selected when you will die, when I will die, when all of us will die. Death is coming our way. And in our sin, we stand condemned before God, deserving nothing but death. The death sentence has been issued, and we're just waiting for the day of execution. Like the Jews in this story were helpless without a mediator, without an advocate, apart from someone to plead our case. 
Each and every person stands before God condemned. We have all gone our own way and we deserve death. But friends, let this story point you to our great mediator, Jesus Christ. The one who said, if I perish, I perish. And goes before the throne of the ultimate power of the universe and he perishes. He takes it for us. He takes the perishing that you deserve and he bears it himself. But that's not where he stays. Jesus, he raises from the dead. He is victorious even over death. You see, we have a great advocate. Though we deserve that, he takes it. He took the penalty that we deserve. Because of what he has done, we've been let off. We go free. And so let this story push you, not to just apply it to where has God placed me. That's an appropriate application. It's a question that all of us should be asking and wondering, why has God put me in this place? That's a, a fine application. But let it primarily push you to worship. That's what this story is here for. It's primarily here so that you'll see the work that God has done for you. Remember, we're not trying to be religious people here who say God loves me more because I do the right thing for him, but we're gospel people who say God has done all of the work. God has done all of the work. Let this story show you that God does all of the work. Where are you trying to earn your righteousness before God? Where are you trying to say this story is about me? That's the application. Your life is not about you. You are, not, you are more like King Xerxes than you are Esther, thinking that the world revolves around you. But this story shows us that we are not the center of the universe, but that God has a bigger plan that we can get caught up in, that we can be a part of, and that he has redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior God. And so let us weave our lives into that story and live in accordance with what he has for us. Each week we remember Christ's completed work and how he perished on our behalf by taking a communion meal. And this week as we close the service, as we, as we adore Christ, let's receive this meal and be reminded that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. Father, as we come to your table now, we, we pray that you will help us to understand more deeply the cosmic nature of everything that you've done for us, that you will help us more deeply to understand the work of Christ on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for this story of Esther. We thank you for this story of your great salvation to your people, though they do not deserve it, though, though they did not earn it at least, you have given it to them. And God, we pray that we might live our lives in light of that. Help us to not see ourselves as the main character, but to see ourselves as part of your greater story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>